Hello, everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this is now the sixth episode of season four. We're back to true crime this week after having a mid-season break last week. It was a movie review episode last week, and I hope you all had a chance to check it out and weren't too put off by it not being true crime. I welcome my mate David John Brady to the show. He's a composer. He's also the person who created my intro music. And we discussed Danny Boyle's 2002 zombie horror flick, 28 Days Later. I do like to throw in the odd movie review mid-season and post-season because it just mixes it up for me. It gives me the chance to have a chinwag with people, which you can probably tell I quite enjoy doing. Seeing as we're back to the regular show format, let us firstly start with this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. That's right. We're back with the show's opening icebreaker segment named Daddy Facts or simply Dad Facts. If you're new here, then this segment involves me reading out a random dad fact from a pack of cards that my daughter got me a few years ago. So far, I've only known one or two, and we're yet to find anything that would save our lives in the jungle or an isolated environment like Tom Hanks in Castaway. Here we go. Let's read this week's dad fact. Father's Day was invented in 1910 in Spokane, Washington, hope I'm saying that right, by Sonora Smart Dodd, the daughter of a single father. That's interesting. Because I have a daughter. Would she do that for me? Would you? If you're watching this as an adult. <laughs> it's lovely that, isn't it? But again, it's not life-saving. It's sentimental. Not much to say about that one, I'll be honest. <laughs> I think it's time we move on to the final icebreaker segment of the show. It's time for this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. And here is this week's haiku. Cold, sharp steel on skin, stunned into breathlessness, head whirls, cold life fades. We've got a little, for the sake of the YouTube, a little picture of what looks like a coffin covered in moss with a cross on it and some kind of feather. And that, as a reminder, was a haiku which is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in lines of three, five, and seven. And it's meant to be read in one breath. The book I get these from is called The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku by Rose Bundy. There's a link to it in my bio if you are interested in haiku or Japanese poetry or murderous thoughts from someone's brain. So you can buy it there if you wish. But without further ado, let's get into some true crime. Before I get into this week's episode, though, I wanted to share some news relating to one of my season three villains. The story of David Harker, or Devil Man, as he liked to be known, was covered in season three, episode nine of British Murders. Now, a YouTuber named Alison Collett, or Colette, possibly, commented on my David Harker video a week or two ago and said the following. Harker should have been up for parole two days ago, but it's been denied because of Helen's law. As a Darlow resident, I'm glad. That's understandable. Now, thank you, Alison, for that comment, because this it really is an interesting development with regards to British murderers. For those not in the know, Helen's Law, or the Prisoner's Disclosure of Information about Victims Act 2020, as it's officially known, received royal assent on November 4th, 2020. This new law follows the tireless campaigning of Marie McCourt, mother of Helen McCourt. 
22-year-old Helen McCourt was murdered in 1988 by Ian Sims, and he's never revealed her body's location. To sum up Helen's law, it means that murderers who hold back information on their victims could now face longer behind bars. It also applies to paedophiles who make indecent images of children but don't identify their victims. Bringing it back to David Harker, he was denied parole on October 26, 2021 as a result of this new law. Another British murderer, Glyn Rizel, who murdered his estranged wife, Linda Rizel, in 2002, was also denied parole on October 27, 2021, as a result of Helen's Law. So these are the first two people to be denied parole based on this new law. Side note, Ian Sims, who killed Helen McCourt, was actually released from prison in February 2020, despite a legal bid from Marie McCourt to keep him behind bars. How frustrating that Helen's Law received royal assent only eight months later. Anyway, with that brief update finished, we can finally get into this week's episode. There wasn't too much information out there about this one, so it might be a bit on the shorter side, but as with all cases covered here on British Murders, I'm sure it will be worth listening to. This case was suggested by listener Colin Condon in Wellingborough. If that name rings a bell, it's because Chris also suggested the David and Diane Shenery Wickens case that I covered in episode three of season four. Chris sent this case suggestion, along with the Shenery Wickens one, via email to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com, and as with all case suggestions, I added it to my episode list, and here we are. As a reminder, this fourth season is made up entirely of listener-suggested cases, so if you want me to cover a case and get a shout-out, please do get in touch. Season 5's episode list is also filling up quickly, so please keep your case suggestions coming in, and if you want yours to be featured sooner rather than later, Now's the time. Please send them in. As always, let's start with a look at the area where this story takes place. This week, we're in the picturesque village of Cromford, which is located in the East Midlands county of Derbyshire. My research informs me that Cromford is the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. In 1771, Sir Richard Arkwright built the world's first water-powered cotton spinning mill in Cromford. That's a mouthful. It took me about four takes. That I hope you appreciate it. If, like me, you don't know who Sir Richard Arkwright is, he was an English inventor and a leading entrepreneur who was considered the father of the modern industrial factory system. His invention transformed the manufacture of cotton in England, an industry that was a cornerstone of the British Industrial Revolution. I took a look on TripAdvisor this week to see what the top 10 things were to do in Cromford. I won't go through them all, but here's a breakdown of the top three. At number three is what we've already discussed, Cromford Mills. Entry to the site is free, but you will have to get your wallet or purse out if you want a guided tour. Number two is a weathered outcrop of ash over grit named Black Rocks. Ash over grit. It's part of a hiking trail. It's basically a big rock kind of thing. I guess that's what ash over grit is. And finally, the number one thing to do in Cromford is to visit the Cromford Canal. There's, there's not much to do in these small British villages, so you've you got to take whatever's there. The canal, if you're interested, was completed in 1794. It's 14.5 miles long, or 23.3 kilometers long if you use the metric system. But let's swiftly move on from canals and history and the Industrial Revolution. Let's get to true crime. With that facts portion out of the way, so random every week, we'll now take a look at this week's villain. His name is Colin Cheatham, and he hails from the Derbyshire town of Ripley. 
Ripley looks like your bog-standard town based on the images available online. Colin Cheatham, however, was far from bog-standard. That term, by the way, just means ordinary, basic, unremarkable in British slang, just in case you're wondering. I don't normally do this on my episodes, but I'm going to describe to you what Colin looks like. Maybe it's something, if you did a simple Google images search on him, you wouldn't be judged for thinking he was from somewhere in the USA. Now, that's not because of his physique, so don't take that the wrong way. But most of the pictures available show him with at least one gun in his hand, and he frequently has a ginormous cigar hanging out of his mouth. At a guess, I'd say he likes John Wayne movies and fancies himself as either a gangster or a bit of a cowboy. All conjecture, of course. He's got a grey circle beard with bits of white at the bottom. He wears big glasses, has short to medium length hair that, if I'm not mistaken, is almost mullet-like. For the sake of our timeline, which starts in 2009, Colin is 60 years old and he uses a cane to get around. It's one of those wooden canes with a curled top, almost like a candy cane shape. The first 60 years of his life are not documented anywhere that I could find. But based on what I'm about to tell you, it doesn't take a genius to work out what kind of person he was. He was married, but my goodness, did he and his wife live a chaotic life. The house was said to be so disgusting and cluttered that Colin and his wife were forced to sleep downstairs as their bedroom was inaccessible. His wife was said to be a recluse, and it feels like the word hoarder is accurate for the Cheatham's. Now, I've not seen that word mentioned whilst conducting my research, but what other name would you give someone who stores their own piss in drinks bottles? You heard me right. Colin kept bottles of his own urine all over the house. Why? I honestly don't ever want to know. It's obvious from the pictures available of Colin to see that he was a gun enthusiast. He did it the legal way too, initially at least, and acquired a gun license. It's not exactly easy to do in the UK. You need to get a firearm or shotgun certificate application form from the firearms licensing unit of your local police force, complete the application form, provide one passport photo, have two referees for a firearm certificate and one referee for a shotgun certificate, and then pay the fee for the certificate you're applying for. You must also prove to the chief of police that you're allowed to have a firearm certificate and pose no danger to public safety or to the peace. The UK government's website doesn't go into greater detail than that, but I imagine it's quite a stringent process. It did say, though, that you need a firearm certificate issued by the police to possess, buy, or acquire a firearm or shotgun, and you also require a certificate to buy ammunition. Colin did just that and had live ammunition for all of his weapons. He was a member of a gun club, so it's probably a fair assumption to say he was a decent shot and did a fair bit of shooting practice at his club shooting range. Aside from all the hoarding and piss storing, Colin had another strange hobby. Hobby may be the wrong word, but he was obsessed with keeping and studying railway timetables. Now, I don't mean that he solely studied when trains would arrive and depart to certain locations. He also studied the train stations themselves. Focusing on the ones in Derbyshire, makes sense as that's where he lived, Colin had a collection of photographs of every single railway station in the county. He would later state that he was putting together photos for an upcoming railway calendar. Who would buy that? I don't know. But that is thought to be nonsense. Imagine receiving that in your Christmas gift. 
I bought you a, a calendar, son. Oh, that'll be useful for next year, 2022. Brilliant. What's it of? Railway stations. Cheers. What is more realistic and fits this story perfectly is that Colin was in fact scouting Derbyshire's railway stations to find a perfectly isolated murder site. You might be thinking, whoa, that escalated quickly, mate. You'd be right. There's no evidence anywhere that suggests Colin was either a psychopath, a sociopath, a serial killer, devil worshipper, or that he was into anything macabre aside from the whole gun obsession thing. Nevertheless, Colin one day woke up and chose violence. On September 17th, 2009, he called a local taxi firm called MJ's and asked them to send a driver to pick him up from Cromford Railway Station. It's of no relevance to this story, but apparently Cromford Railway Station serves as one of England's prettiest train stations, according to the train line. It's one of the few stations that still has its 19th century station buildings intact, something so rare that the stone structures have received grade two listed status. <laughs> I don't know why I went into an accent there. I felt like I was doing a commercial. Here's the most relevant piece of information to our story, though. It's an unmanned railway station. Nice and isolated, just what Colin was looking for. The unfortunate taxi driver sent to answer Colin's call that day was the 43-year-old father of three, Stuart Ludlam of Darley Dale. To make what I'm about to tell you even worse, Colin had zero connection to Stuart and didn't know him from Adam. As soon as Stuart pulled into the station, Colin pulled out a gun and shot at the car. His first shot went through the rear windscreen and hit Stuart in the head. He managed to survive that first shot, though he was obviously injured, but sadly, that wasn't the end of it. Once the car had stopped, Colin walked over to it and dragged Stuart out of the driver's side door. He forced him to walk to the back of the car at gunpoint and was told to kneel in the boot or the trunk of the car. Left completely vulnerable, Stuart Ludlam was then shot in the head, execution style by Colin Cheatham, who then casually left the crime scene. Later that same day, Peter Noble, who had been away on a holiday, was leaving the station when he noticed the idling car. As he made his way closer to the vehicle, he'll have been suspicious because how many random cars do you find with the engine on in the middle of an isolated train station? He noticed something hanging out of the back of it. Upon closer inspection, Peter realised it was the arm of a human, Stuart Ludlam in this case, and he immediately called the police. The first thing the baffled police officers did was to contact MJ's, as Stuart's car will have clearly been marked with their logo and their contact number. It's a taxi car, remember? After speaking with the firm's owner, Tracy Shelton, the police were given the phone details of the individual who Stuart was sent to pick up. It didn't take long for them to track down the owner of the phone as being Colin Cheatham. Despite buying the pay-as-you-go phone using cash at his local Morrison supermarket a month before the cold-blooded murder, he had used his credit card to top it up, which therefore linked him to the phone and to the call made and to the crime. Not his smartest move. Colin was soon arrested, and it was then that the police searched his house, found all the bottles of piss and the collection of photographs of Derbyshire's railway stations. They also found the camera used to take the photographs in his collection. When questioned, Colin admitted that his new phone, the term burner phone is accurate here, was the one used to phone MJ's and book the taxi on September 17th, but he said he was not responsible for making the call. Upon being asked the next logical question in that scenario, who was it then? Colin said it was two local lads named Stan and Jeff who he'd met in the local pub. 
Collins said they pressured him into giving them his gun or loaning them his gun, as he put it. But the supposed regulars at the Old Oak pub in Horsley Woodhouse were said to not even exist by the actual locals. In local British pubs, everyone knows everyone and new people often get stared at until they leave. It's fair to say that if the actual regulars said that Stan and Jeff didn't exist, Colin had probably just made them up. One such regular named Keith Gerling said the following about the two fictitious suspects. Nobody around here has heard of them. All the people we've spoken to in the pub, nobody's heard of Stan or this Jeff. Colin used to sit and read magazines about cameras and guns and various things. He seemed a bit of a loner to most of us, but was an amicable guy. We were surprised when all this came up. What's so weird about this case is there is literally zero motive for the killing. There's no connection between the killer and his victim. There's no real personality traits that provide a telltale sign of murderous behavior. And nobody in Colin's circle of friends or acquaintances had a bad word to say about him. Bringing it back to Tracy Shelton, owner of MJ's taxi firm, she said, it could have been anybody. If he hadn't phoned us, he would have phoned another company. But that day, if I hadn't been at a funeral, I would have taken that booking and I would have sent my husband down. Sheila Ludlam, Stuart's mum and grandma to his three kids, said, three children for him and three grandchildren for me, and he loved them with all his heart. All he wanted was a little girl. He got his little girl, but of course, she hasn't got a daddy anymore. That last sentence hits me so hard, honestly. When the case came to trial in June 2010, Peter Joyce, QC, acted as case prosecutor. He reiterated to the jury that Colin appeared to have no motive whatsoever, other than the desire to shoot a complete stranger. He said, It was his gun. He had planned it. It was his phone. He had no knowledge of Mr. Ludlam, but he had a fascination with taxes and a fascination with guns, and Mr. Ludlam was just the unlucky man with whom this fascination ended. Colin Cheatham was sentenced to life imprisonment on June 29, 2010 at Nottingham Crown Court with a minimum term to serve of 30 years. He was 61 years old at the time of his sentencing. Detective Chief Superintendent Tony Blockley of Derbyshire Police had the following to say after the trial ended. Colin Cheatham is an evil man who carried out a despicable act which was seemingly motiveless. This crime was totally unpredictable. My own personal point of view is that he has executed Mr. Ludlam simply to see what it would be like to kill someone due to his personal fascination with firearms. My only hope is at some point he can explain to someone why he has done this as we have never been able to prove a motive or glean the real story about what happened from Cheatham. That leaves many unanswered questions for Mr. Ludlam's family and friends. Sadly, Tony Blockley would not get his wish. On May 1st, 2020, at the age of 71, Colin Cheatham died at HMP Wakefield. The announcement was confirmed by a prison service spokesperson who also said that, as with all deaths in custody, the prisons and probation ombudsman had been informed. No specific cause of death was given as far as I can see, but what I do know is that Colin had been unwell for a good few years prior to his death, and there are rumours that he tested positive for COVID-19 shortly before his death. At the time of his death, the now former head of crime at Derbyshire Police, Tony Blockley, said he never explained why he did what he did. We could never find any motive and he never said anything while in prison. For the family devastated by the death, they're also left wondering why and will be forever. 
And that was the story of British murderer Colin Cheatham. Thanks again to Colin Condon for suggesting that case. I really hope I'm saying your name there right. I've got one new review to read out this week. Thank you, BrownXD420, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on iTunes. They said, Yo, dude, I basically just binged your podcast so I can finally put a review. Wicked show. Had me laughing at some point. Loving the way you tell the stories and loving your accent as well. Spot on. Definitely filled my murder appetite for sure, but now I'm all caught up. I feel lost, lol. But yeah, keep it up, dude. And then there's two peace emojis. Cheers, dude. Really appreciate your kind words. Your grammar wasn't great, but I worked around it. <laughs> Not a comma in sight. Never mind. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes or Podchaser. All reviews help increase the show's exposure and they are, of course, greatly appreciated. I'd also like to thank my newest Patreon member, Eleanor Graham, for supporting British Murders. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you for that. You can do the same if you like by visiting patreon.com slash British Murders. And finally, thank you to Donna Mass for buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash British Murders. Donna said, absolutely love the way you express the stories. Succinct. Now, I think that's a typo. I assume it was meant to be succinct because that's what I used to say in my intro. Succinct? Succinct? I don't know. I'll take it. Appreciate the kind words. But anyway, thanks for that, Donna. If you want to hear more or see more on British murders, please check out all my social media channels as well as YouTube. Merchandise is available to purchase at Teespring. Keep those case suggestions coming in, please. Send them to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you will also get a cheeky shout out. That's it for now. (laughs) I promise that's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.